I want to pray with you, though, before we now turn to the Word of God so that the Holy Spirit might ignite the Holy Scriptures and that the teaching today would be clear to our worshiping minds and spirits and hearts. Let's pray together. Oh, Holy Ghost, anoint us, we pray. Baptize us, we pray. Fill us, we pray, with your Spirit. You are here. You are here right now. Oh God, may we hear you, the God who is here. We humbly pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 110 years ago yesterday, all right? 110 years ago yesterday, these words were first read in print. Let me read the words to you. It is all essential for the Christian to understand. All right, that would be the whole audience here, wouldn't it? It is all essential for the Christian to understand the meaning of the promise of the Holy Spirit just prior to the coming of our Lord Jesus the second time. All essential. If you're a Christian... All essential to understand the meaning of the promise of the Holy Spirit, especially this close to the second coming of Christ. All essential. One more sentence. Talk of it. Pray for it. Preach concerning it. For the Lord is more willing to give the Holy Spirit than parents are to give good gifts to their children. Hallelujah again. Talk of it. Pray for it. Preach concerning it. For God, like the greatest parent in the universe, is eager to give that gift. Quoting, of course, Luke eleven thirteen. I mean, I'm not a great parent. Jesus said, you know, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your, to your children. Just a couple weeks ago, I deeded over our very nice 1986 Honda to my son, Kirk. The pocket rockets. It has nothing to do with me. It's not some great and magnanimous act on the part of this little dad. It's just, I wanted to give him, I wanted to give him a good gift. And so I gave that Honda to Kirk. And my daughter thinks now it's her turn. 16 years old? Yeah, like, right, dream on. I'm not that good a dad. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to them who ask? Oh, it is all essential for Christians just before the return of Jesus Christ to understand the meaning of the promise of the Holy Spirit. So I wish you would open your Bible with me. Part 9 in our continuing series, our teaching that's called The Revealing. Open your Bible, please, to the Bible's last book, The Mighty Apocalypse. Revelation. Revelation. Oh, we have been coming. This is the ninth time we have come to this revealing as we are looking for the faces of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although we've seen another face upon the throne and today the God of the seven faces, the God of the seven faces. You say, wait a minute, do I, you know, I haven't heard all nine. I mean, I missed, I, missed, I missed three, I think. I missed five. Go to our website then. www.pmchurch, Pioneer Memorial, pmchurch.org. They're all there. I want you to get the whole gallery of these faces that we have been collecting in our journey together. 
But you know what? This, this, is, this is amazing because it, it's like Where is Waldo? You remember those Where is Waldo books? We did it for a children's story this morning. I thought these kids would not have a clue as to Where is Waldo. Are you kidding? I got a book from uh, down here in our, our uh, village library and I held the book open to the page and they spotted it instantly. They went right to the spot. They've read the books. You know how Where is Waldo works, don't you? A guy with his, uh, what is it, a red and white ski cap. But the artist hides him because there's so much red and white, you can't find Waldo unless you're five or younger. Then you spot him immediately. What is the deal with our kids? You know, it, it, it's as if we have a divine Waldo in the throne room. Have you noticed that? I mean, we have, this, we have the Almighty God seated upon the throne. We've seen Him there in Revelation 4. And then we go to Revelation 5, and we have the Lamb taking up His seat upon the throne. But where is, not where is Waldo, where is the Holy Spirit? Where is He? He's missing. In fact, I need to tell you that if you want to sing the great hymns of the apocalypse, and there are five hymns in Revelation 4 and 5 that worship in the throne room, you want to know how many times they're singing about the Holy Spirit in heaven? Take a look at this. Open your Bible. Revelation chapter 4. Have you already got it there? Well, let me find it with you then. Revelation chapter 4. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. Take a look at this, will you? You know, one thing I like about God is that he likes his worship music like I like to play the stereo. God likes it louder and louder and louder. I want you to notice that. We're going to look for the Holy Spirit in the five hymns, but I want you in the process to notice the music getting louder and louder and louder, just like the people on the other side of the wall from you in the dormitory. Have you noticed that? They're always turning louder and louder. What is the deal that louder, louder? God loves his music that way as well. Look at this. Revelation chapter 4. There are five hymns here. In fact, we'll put them on the screen. Watch this. Hymn number one, Revelation 4, 8. How many people are singing hymn number one? Let's drop down there to uh, verse 8. The hymn is, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. How many people are singing? Four. Four beings who are singing that hymn number one. Okay, now comes hymn number two. Hymn number two is, let's see here, verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things. How many people are singing there? Twenty-four. It's getting louder now. You had four in hymn one. Now you have twenty-four. Come to hymn number three in, in uh, Revelation 5, and that would be verse 9. And they sing a song, you are worthy. They're singing to the Lamb, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God. Now how many are singing? Notice the four beings join the twenty-four. So you have now twenty-eight. The music is getting louder. Now here we go to hymn number, number four, and that would be verse... Twelve, singing with a full voice, singing with a megaphone in the Greek. Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might and honor and glory forever and ever. How many are now singing? According to the verse just before that hymn, in the Greek, myriads upon myriads. Do you know how much a myriad is in Greek? A myriad is 10,000. 10,000 times 10,000, a minimum, a choir, minimum of a hundred million voices. Now, can you feel that quadraphonic stereo working? There's one more hymn to go, and God says, I got one more notch on this volume meter. And he cranks it up, hymn number five, to the one, this would be verse 13, to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And now everybody in the universe is singing. So we're talking major, major decibels. Thank you, Lord, for being that way as an example to us. And to our wives, by the way. And to our wives. All right. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, we just noticed five hymns. 
How many of those hymns had a stanza devoted to the Holy Spirit? How many? Just hold your fingers out. How many? Not a one. Not, there is not a peep in the music, in the hymnody of the throne room. There is not a peep about the mighty third person of the Godhead. In fact, do you know what? In the apocalypse, he is flying low. He is under the radar screen in Revelation. Oh, there are three tiny little mini hints. And I want you to take a look at those three. These are the three. This is it. Oh, he's there. We've got the hints. Go to chapter one. Just turn a page back. Chapter one, verse four. John. Oh, it's been, seems like years ago that we were here. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. There he is. Seven spirits. Now go over to chapter four. Chapter four. Drop down to verse 5. And coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. There he is. One more cryptic clue. Chapter 5, verse 6. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That cryptic little closing line tells us why he's not on the radar screen in heaven. Do you know why he's not on the radar screen in heaven? Because he's been sent down to earth. He's on another radar screen now. So the question today is not where is Waldo? The question is where is the Holy Spirit on earth? And I must tell you, the moment we ask the where question, where is the Holy Spirit, this is going to happen. Simultaneously, simultaneously, we're going to end up answering the when question. We're going to answer when, what, remember last week, the mighty coronation of the Lamb upon His throne. When did that take place? When we ask the where's the Holy Spirit question, we're going to ask the when did Jesus get crowned question. The New Testament has a mighty witness along with the apocalypse. In fact, you know what I wish? I wish you would jot these texts down. You're going to see something fascinating develop right here in this teaching in front of your eyes. And I wish you would jot the text down. Now, when we get into our next journey, when it's colder and there's snow on the ground, we'll have those little study guides and we'll fill those out. But I, I, I wish you would study with me to show yourself approved to God. Isn't that how Second Timothy puts it? A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I wish you would study with me now. Uh, take a look at the New Testament witness. Let's go to the Gospel of John, same writer as the Apocalypse, the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 37. And on the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, He cried out, Let anyone who is thirsty come to Me, and let the one who believes in Me drink. As the Scripture has said, Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now He said this about the Spirit, which believers in Him were to receive. For as yet there was no Spirit, because Jesus was not yet what? He was not yet what? He hadn't been glorified. No Spirit until Jesus is glorified. Now, look, we saw Revelation 5 last week. He surely was glorified then. So when was then? Let's take a look at the... Witness to, of the early church, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together, the early church, in one place. And suddenly, 
from heaven. There came a sound like the rush of a violent wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out. Now, the, John just said he's not going to get poured out until Jesus is glorified, which means Jesus must be glorified. What does that glorification mean? Let's go to the little book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, verse 8. Therefore, it is said. Here comes. Paul's telling us. When he, that would be Jesus, ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive and he gave gifts to his people. Jesus, ten days before Pentecost, Jesus ascends to heaven. He gives gifts on Pentecost. We need one more text to cinch it in. Fascinating. Jot this down. Acts chapter 2. We'll go back to Acts chapter 2. And we'll, we'll notice the narrative in Acts 2. We'll pick it up this time in verse 14. But Peter, this is after the, the mighty uh, outpouring there in the upper room. An upper room, by the way, I've had the privilege of standing in. Archaeologists believe it is the most, it, it is accurately established as the place where the Holy Spirit was poured out. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice because all of Jerusalem's come flocking. They've heard this commotion. He raised his voice and he addressed them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk. These aren't a bunch of, they haven't been having too much. No, 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 no. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. What's going on here? No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And now he quotes that Old Testament witness. In the last days, Joel wrote, It will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And upon even my slaves, both men and women in those days, God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. In the last days, this is going to come. In the last days, this is going to come again. Now, now, now Peter's going on. Now he says, listen, fellas and, and ladies, you that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, you know this man, handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. Now, hold on. Here it comes. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses, being therefore, so he ascends back to heaven, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that was a lengthy reading from Holy Scripture. But I'm telling you why we read it. We read it because Peter is affirming that when Jesus sat down and the crown was placed upon his head as the lamb that was slaughtered for the salvation of this earth, when that crown went on, the Spirit came down. Did you catch that? When did Revelation 5 take place? It took place just before the day of Pentecost. When the crown went on, the Spirit came down. I.e., when Revelation 5 took place above, Acts 2 took place down here below. When Christ the Lamb took the scroll, the Spirit of God took the church. Coronation above, Pentecost below, Father and Son worshipped above, Holy Spirit poured out below. 
Does that make sense? Do you see that? Now, there's one more piece of evidence I've got to share with you. Oh, Jacques Ducand, one of our professors here at the, at the Theological Seminary. I've quoted him before. His book, Secrets of Revelation, the Apocalypse Through Hebrew Eyes. He tells me something. I never knew this before. I predict you never knew it either. Watch this. Final proof that the coronation took place at the time of Pentecost. I'm going to re- uh, we'll, we'll put uh, Jack's words up on the screen here. This scene from the Apocalypse, that would be Revelation 5, follows, this is a review of what we did last week, follows the traditional ritual of enthronement found throughout ancient Near Eastern culture. It was customary for the new king to read the covenant that bound him to his suzerain, that would be his overlord, he was supposed to read it out loud. Likewise, in Israel, the newly crowned king inaugurated the enthronement ceremony by reading the book or the scroll of the covenant, thus expressing his dependence on his suzerain, on God. Now, here comes the line I didn't know. Watch this. Interestingly, the enthronement of Yeshua, that's Jesus' name in Aramaic and Hebrew, you know that. Yeshua, they didn't call him Jesus. There was no such a name as Jesus in that language. That's the Greek name. He was Yeshua. But his mother called him, Yeshua, come in, Yeshua. It's time to eat. Interestingly, the enthronement of Yeshua takes place in the liturgical context of Pentecost, a point already hinted at by the numerous parallels between our passage in Revelation 5 and Exodus 19 and 20, the main worship or liturgical reading during Pentecost, end quote. I never saw that before. You know what he's saying? There are such strong visual and literary ties between what's happening in Revelation 5, the crowning of Christ, and the giving of the Ten Commandments way back here at Exodus 19 and 20. And he says the reason there's that correlation is because on the day of Pentecost, the major, when they gather for worship, the major reading was the Ten Commandments. Now hold on, guys, hold on. Isn't this amazing? This, this is significant, given that there are some Christians today who insist that the Ten Commandments all got nailed onto the cross. No more. We're not under law now. It's New Covenant time. No more Old Covenant. Isn't this amazing that at the end of the first century, talking about post-Calvary, by 60 years, that John takes the imagery of the giving of the Ten Commandments upon Mount Sinai and he uses it for a post-Calvary event. I never knew that. I've got to share this with you. Do you know how, how close the parallels are? Get this. The lamb, you remember the lamb picks up a scroll. How, how many sides of the scroll was, a, was it written on? How many sides? You remember? How many sides? Both sides. Do you know that when Moses got the Ten Commandments, they were written on both sides? Do you know that in both instances, flashes of lightning and thunder and the sound of trumpets accompanied the events? Number three, did you know that in both events, the Lord summoned the prophet, come up here. He summoned Moses, come up here for my revelation, come to Sinai. He summoned John, come up here to my throne room for my revelation. Both instances. Listen to this. Number four, in both events, the people are called to be a nation of priests. If I come on, hold on now. Number five, in both events, the sanctuary is inaugurated. One on earth at Mount Sinai and the other in heaven in Revelation 5. 
Wow, beware of anybody who comes to you and says, hey, you know, I'm going to tell you something. You, you, you know, you're keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath according to the Fourth Commandment. It's all Old Covenant. It's been done away with. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Just read the Bible's last book that still is very pro-Mount Sinai and is post-Mount Calvary. Wow. What a teaching. You know, I'm so grateful to God for the scholars in our midst, aren't you? I mean, you and I would have read that a hundred times. We never would have caught that. But we have scholars like the ones I've been quoting in this series. And they're right here in our midst. Aren't we lucky? Huh? What is now clear is that Revelation 5's glorious coronation was the divine trigger to the Holy Spirit's new ministry and mission on earth. Which is why, by the way, Revelation 5, 6 reads the way it does. Take a look at this. This is Revelation 5. Your Bible still open there? Revelation 5, 6. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into the earth. Now, just read verse 7. He, the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. Ladies and gentlemen, when Christ ascended upon the throne, the Holy Spirit descended upon the earth. That's it. It's a two-way direction. Christ takes the throne. The Holy Spirit says, I take the earth now. Acts of the Apostles. Beautiful description of that coronation. Let me put the words up there for you. Christ's ascension to heaven was the signal that His followers were to receive the promised blessing. When Christ passed within the heavenly gates, He was enthroned amidst the adoration of angels. As soon as this ceremony, Revelation 5, was completed, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in rich currents. And Christ was indeed glorified even with the glory which He had with the Father from all eternity, the Pentecostal outpouring was heaven's communication that the Redeemer's inauguration was accomplished. You down there can know that we now have a King upon the throne again. Hallelujah. What do you say? We got a King on the throne today. Hallelujah. Revelation 4, verse 5. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. Revelation 5, verse 6. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The seven faces of the other God. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, Dwight, please. I mean, what, what is the third millennial truth here? It's just all you're giving us is ancient history. Okay? Here is the third millennial truth. Here's how you find the third millennial truth. You answer this question. What was the church doing when the Holy Spirit got poured out upon it? You answer that question. What was the church doing when Pentecost happened. What were they doing? They were worshiping. They are not having a potluck in Acts 2. I can promise you there is no potluck going on. They are not at a picnic. What are they doing? They are worshiping. It's when the church is worshiping that the Spirit comes down. 
Take a look at the historical evidence again. If you're not sure, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. No, let's go to Acts 1, 14 first. All these were constantly... This is right after Jesus ascended. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. They're in the upper room. They are praying. They are worshiping. And then, Acts 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. What are they doing? They are worshiping. And verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, hold on. When Jesus is crowned the rightful king upon heaven's throne, in that moment, the gates of heaven are opened and the Spirit is poured out upon a worshiping church. The Holy Spirit comes down when we come up in worship. Isn't that so? The Holy Spirit comes down when we come up up in worship. Wow. You say, oh, Dwight, you know what that is? Come on. That's just, that's just Pentecost. One time event. You're trying to make a whole truth out of it. I am not. Let me tell you something. It happens all the way through the book of Acts. Acts 4, Holy church comes up in worship. Holy Spirit comes down. Acts 13, church comes up in worship. Holy Spirit comes down. Acts 10, church comes up in worship. Holy Spirit comes down. It is repeated over and over and over again. When the Holy, the Holy Spirit comes down from the throne, as it were, when the church comes up to the throne, as it were, in worship. And that, my friends, is the great truth about the God of the seven faces. In fact, may I, may I leave this truth with you in this sentence? When the church, this is the truth. When the church is in worship, the Spirit is in church. No worship, no Spirit. No Spirit, no worship. When the church is in worship, the Spirit is in church. That's how intimately the Holy Spirit is caught up with this thing called worship. So the question we must ask ourselves, when I go to worship, when I come to church, do I sense the presence of the almighty third person of the Godhead? Do I? Do I? Do you? When you come to worship, when you go to church? I'll tell you a story. When my sister Carrie and her husband Keith Jacobson were on the pastoral staff at Pacific Union College a few years ago... Um, I went out to our sister college there in California to conduct a week of prayer. So I got in there late uh, Sunday afternoon. I'm up early Monday morning and I'm on Eastern time zone. So I'm up even earlier than normal. I'm up and I'm having worship. And at the end of my worship, I'm having prayer. I'm having I'm kneeling down by my bed, my guest bed there. And I'm having prayer in their home. Keith and Carrie's home. When all of a sudden, as I am in prayer, I hear the sound of footsteps coming up behind me. And suddenly, the footsteps stop. I turn around. Whew. It wasn't my brother-in-law. It was not the heavy tread of Keith, but it was the tiny little pitter-patter of their boy, now 17, but I think he was four or five, Zachary at the time. And here was Zachary. You know how you wake up and you know how your kids wake up in the morning with their faces all twisted and screwed around and they're just so tight. You know that? By the way, you wake up the same. You need to know that. 
So here's Zachary. His face is all twisted around, scrunched, and, and, and he has his one piece. You remember those pajamas you used to wear that zipped all the way down to your toes? So he has his one-piece PJs on, and he has plastered this little smile on his face. And when I turn around, I'm looking, because he's down eye level. To, to a kneeling adult, he is down eye level. And I'm looking straight in his face, and he announces to me, I'm here. <laughs> like I've been up all night waiting for this boy to finally come so that we could be together. But I've got to tell you, in the blush of that innocence... That is precisely the great truth about worship. When we kneel down, suddenly there is the sound, the pitter-patter of footsteps, and we turn around and we hear a voice behind us. No, we hear a voice inside of us that whispers, I'm here. I'm here. I bet you've been been up all night waiting for me to come. I'm here now. That's worship. That's what happens in worship. The voice. You say, oh, Dwight, whose voice is it? Well, whose voice do you think it is? You say, well, it's probably the voice of Jesus. Is it really? You think it's the voice of Jesus? Well, you say, yeah, Dwight, don't you know Matthew 18, 20? How does Matthew 18, 20 go? Where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there I am in your midst. See, it has to be Jesus. Hey, time out, my friend. You're not thinking clearly. How could it be Jesus? I mean, the great gift of the second person of the Godhead is that he has embraced our corpus. Isn't that men's corpus spiritus? Isn't that the motto of Andrews University? He has embraced our corpus, our body. And as the Latin puts it, he has been in flesh. The word for Latin in uh, the flesh in Latin is carnal. Carnal, right? Incarnation. Incarnation. He has been in flesh. In our bodies forever and ever. So I'm going to ask you, you think it's Jesus, do you? Wait a minute. If Jesus is in heaven, it is humanly, divinely impossible for him to be on earth. And by the way, if he came down to worship with Pioneer right now, everybody else out of luck. Because he can no longer, and this just, this just amazes me, the depth of his sacrifice. He can no longer exercise that prerogative of divinity. He gave it up. I can only be one place at one time. So it can't be Jesus. The footsteps you hear, who is it? Ah, On the eve of his execution, Jesus, through the same one who wrote the apocalypse, speaks in the Gospel of St. John. Look at this, John chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper, that would be the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of whom, Jesus said, of whom? He said, he'll talk about me. Look at this, chapter 16. Same gospel, 16, verse 14. He, the Spirit, will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus' point is clarion. When the Spirit shows up, it is always Jesus that we will sense. Because when he shows up, you know, the Holy Spirit has got to be the most selfless being in the entire universe. You think about it. He never talks about Himself. Which is why, you know, with our Pentecostal friends, sometimes we have a little bit of a disagreement there. Because He never shows up and says, I'm here. I mean, the Holy Spirit could throw His weight around. He has all power in the universe. No body to hamper Him now. He just goes, shoom, shoom, and He has it. But when He shows up, He, he is so humble. He didn't say, I'm here, worship me. When He shows up, He says, hey, Jesus is here. Worship Him. 
Worship Him. What a God. The almighty third person of the Godhead. So when you hear, I'm here in worship, when you hear, I'm here in worship, guess who's speaking? The Holy Spirit is bringing to you the voice of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is in that place with you. In fact, you can't see Him, but He's right in the pew beside you. Right now. Right now. He's on the pew beside you because there's somebody beside you. And He's inside that somebody right now, calling the shots. And He's inside me right now. In fact, I've got to do this. Let's do it right here. Let's, 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 let's put the, uh, the schematic of uh, what we've been sharing together. Let me draw it here. All right, there it is. Those of you that recognize good artwork, immediately sense that is the throne of God. <laughs> and, continuing, this is the pew where you're seated right now. There are many different people seated in that pew. But here we are. This is worship. And God is upon His throne. Hallelujah. Jesus says, let me tell you what's happening. Directing worship traffic. I'm sending Him to you. Directing worship traffic. In the midst of it all, there is the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because the traffic is not only one way. We get a little confused. We're very sure about the first way. So let me give you the first way. Oh, we're very sure that in worship, this is what happens. He is bringing to us, as we just read from the Gospel of St. John, He is bringing, us, bringing to us the sense of the presence of God. Right? Presence of Jesus, more specifically. Isn't that right? Oh, I, I have these words. I've, they are so beautifully moving. I have them in the cover of my Bible. I've written them down. I want to share them with you. When the Spirit was poured out from on high, the church was flooded with light, but Christ was that light. The church was filled with joy, but Christ was the subject of that joy. When the Spirit is poured upon His people in this day, Christ's name will be upon every tongue. His love will fill every soul. Because the Holy Spirit is right here in this building right now directing worship. And He is bringing to us through the music we sang a moment ago, through the choir that lifted our hearts up, through the reading of the Word, through the praying of our pastor. He has been bringing to us the sense that God is here. Jesus is here. But, watch this, the Holy Spirit not only brings to us the sense of Jesus' presence, He also takes to Jesus the sense of our prayers. He's running both ways. Take a look at this. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Isn't this beautiful? And God who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Look at Him, ladies and gentlemen. Here He is. He's directing traffic. He's in the middle of it. He's bringing the presence down. He's taking the prayers up. He's our God on site. You know, you say, yeah, I'm going to go to the work site. He's our God on site. 
The God on sight who is never in sight. Never. He's on sight. Different spelling, you understand that. The Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Almighty. All-knowing. All-pervasive. Right here. Right now. Where you're seated. He's there. And so the question that begs to be asked, this one who says, I'm here, I'm here. The question that begs to be asked is, do you and I worship as if He were here when we come here? Worship is not an absentee event. When we worship... And by the way, I do not mean when we attend. Because there's a vast difference between worshiping and attending, isn't there? I mean, they can require your attendance. But they cannot mandate your worship. You can fold your hands and say, I'm not. i got to turn a card in, but I'm, I refuse to worship. You can. Nobody can. You can. Because worship is the response of an intelligent mind and heart voluntarily, freely bowing before God on His throne. You can't, you can't force it. Oh, moms and... Hey, some of you are going to be moms and dads not too long from now. Moms and dads to be, moms and dads who are, have already learned the truth. And that is, you can even command your children to come to worship, can't you? Son, you sit there and you're going to worship. Do you understand me? Listen to me. Read my lips. Worship now. <laughs> Do you think you're going to worship? You know, they worship. I've watched my kids. Wonderful children. And when they're young, they're just into it. Oh, they're into it. They're into it. Kirk used to lead on a worship. He'd read it. I'll be the preacher today. And Christy, when she came out, oh, I'll be the preacher today. But you know, when they get up to around teenage years, I don't know what goes on, but something drastic happens. And you know what? We're no different. We're no different. Make and make me come to this church. Make and make me sit here on Tuesdays and I'll turn my card in that says, I was here, but I refuse to worship. Fire can be igniting hearts and minds all around you. Not a nothing, zero taking place. Cold, nothing. Because it's a choice. When you and I come to that chapel, when you and I come to the dormitory, when you and I get up out of our beds in the early morning privately to worship, do we sense the presence of of the Spirit. The apocalypse is clear. When the church is in worship, the Spirit is in church. No worship, no Spirit, no Spirit, no worship. It's no wonder. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not only called to worship well, but we are called to worship often. Do you understand that? Often. Because the more times we come here, do you understand? The more times we come here, the deeper we go with Jesus. Because when the church is in worship, the Spirit is in church. And of whom does the Spirit speak whenever He shows up? Never about Himself. He talks about Jesus. Fear God. Last generation, fear God and give glory to Him and worship Him who made heaven and earth. Worship that face. Worship that face. Ah, do you sense Him? Do you seek Him when you go to church? When you come to worship? I want to end with a testimony. 
I'm going to be candid with you and be honest right now. Because it's easy for me to be up here and pontificate about it, worship, and you're thinking, boy, man, he must really worship great. I'm going to be honest with you right now. I worship poorly. 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 Sometimes. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed that God knows what's going on. I mean, I, I am to lead out in worship. And if you had come to our new first, that's an incredible experience, but I have a much more proactive role in that new first service. And so, I'm up front. I have to read the words. I call, I, I, I transition into the next component of worship. But I am embarrassed to tell you that there are times when I'm up front or I'm kneeling and my mind is a thousand miles away from this place. Sometimes I'm thinking about Saturday night. What's going to happen? I'm not in front of the throne. I'm not intellectually. I'm not experientially. I am not spiritually in front of the throne. I am gone. And you know, does this, it probably doesn't happen to you, but for me, you know, just I kind of catch myself. And when I realize what I've been thinking of in worship, sometimes I'm even preaching, I have a sense of shame. I'm embarrassed that God just followed that whole line of disjointed thinking. And I would feel guilty and I would heap shame upon myself except that I remember that God is toward me just as I try to be towards my kids. You know what? When my kids were little, they'd get up on my lap. We'd do horsey, 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 horsey. They'd be sitting on my lap and then, oh, I love this moment, you know, they would reach up, one of them would reach up and just hold both hands on my face. Daddy, let me tell you what I did today. And I'm thinking, oh, let this moment never stop in the history of the human race. But then our dog goes by, just... Or a truck outside, just a sound. I tell you what, for these kids, it's just, it can be the smallest of distractions and boom, it's gone. They're off my lap. They're running around. And they, well, I'll just wait right here because I know that, I know that thought will come back to her. I know he'll, he'll be back. He never comes back. He totally forgot, but he's gone. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when my children do that, do I, do I then get a hold of them and say, hey, stand in this corner? Do I berate them? Do I, do I shame them? What is the problem with you? When we're talking, we're talking without interruption. Do you understand? Don't you ever do that again. Do, do I do that? No. You know why I don't do it? Because I'm thinking to myself, that boy's gonna grow up. That girl is gonna mature. And one day, they're gonna be back. Just a few days ago, about 10, 15 days ago, Kurt called up. He's our 22-year-old boy. He'll be 23 in just a few days. He called up and said, Dad, let's go out tonight, you and me, and we're having supper together. You know what? I didn't pull my Palm Pilot out and say, Oh, man, no. Kurt, call me. Are you kidding? I dropped everything because this is what a dad waits for. When the child gets older, when the child finally, by personal choice, says, I want to be in your presence. I want to talk to you and me. If I, who am evil, know how to give good gifts to my children, how much more will the Heavenly Father be patient? Maybe we don't worship as well as we should, but isn't He a wonderful God? He said, oh, Dwight will grow up. I hope. <laughs> I think He will. He's distracted right now. He's thinking, I understand. It's okay. Come back to me. I'll still stay right here. That's the way God is. 
So I blow it, but hallelujah, what a father. There are some times that I don't blow it. And I want to tell you in closing now, that time or those times. There are times when I get to worship and I'll be up here kneeling. I'll be listening to the choir. I'll be sitting on the pew listening to something in a praise song. Something happens. And I'll, private worship, I've learned this. And for what it's worth, I share it. There are times when I have such a hunger for the presence of God revealed that I, I say to God, Oh God, would you please let me sense your presence right now through the Spirit who is here. I just want to know you're here, God. I'm not into this touchy-feely kind of thing. I just want to know that you are here. Hey, is, is it okay to pray that prayer? Come on, two weeks ago we noticed oh, uh, Moses in Exodus 33:18. Oh God, I'm begging of you, show me your glory. If Moses can pray for his glory, why can't I pray for his presence? You can do it too. Oh God, please, right now I'm in the middle of worship, but right now I need to sense your presence through the Spirit. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you the truth. There are times. This is not a quid pro quo. You know, if I can just get God in the corner, He has to react. Oh, no. The times when there's just nothing. But there have been some very sacred and special times when in direct answer to His kid's prayer, the Father says, All right. All right. I'm here. And I'm telling you the truth. There is something that sweeps over me. Just sweeps over me. So that I know what John Wesley once described when he captured that moment and he said, Oh, my heart, I was in worship and my heart was strangely warmed. Something sweeps over me. I hear, I'm here. I don't hear a voice. I don't see a face, but I sense a presence. And I know that at this very moment, while I'm on my knees, God Almighty is in this little tiny room with me. And I fall down and I worship Him. That says nothing about me. This is not rocket science, ladies and gentlemen. This is asking that you might receive. The problem with us as Adventists is we've become so sterile in our worship. We are so worried about overreacting to charismatic influences that instead we are cold, we are at arm's length, we are formal. Don't ask me to feel anything. It's all cognitive, boy. It's cognitive. The problem is some of you are so cognitive you have no heart at all. That heart needs to be ignited in worship. You keep bringing your brains. Bring your heart. Bring your heart to worship. Don't check your brains at the door, please. But bring your heart to worship. David, Psalm 39, verse 3, While I was musing, the fire burned inside of me. It's okay to have feeling in worship. It's okay to sense the presence of God. It's okay to reach out to God as if He were right in that pew beside you and to react to His presence. We have had so many years of this arm's length cognitive worship that I'm afraid some 
hearts have simply forgotten how to worship. When the church is in worship, the Spirit is in church. And all those moments, God, I promise you, God will give them to you. Uh, This is not a plea for some sort of emotional high. Or again, I want to make sure this is clear. This is not a quid pro quo. That means Latin for this, for that. Okay, God, I do this. You have to do that. There are some worship services that try to chant up by praise louder and louder, thinking that if we just get loud enough, God will finally show up. That's not it either. No, 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 no. But this is hungering. Oh God, let me sense your presence through the Spirit right now. When the church is in worship, the Spirit is in church. For the life of me, I can't imagine why we wouldn't want to worship Him more and more and more. I want to end with this prayer. Read the prayer to you. William Augustine Ogden. Baptize us anew with power from on high. With love, O refresh us, dear Savior, draw nigh. We humbly beseech Thee, Lord Jesus, we pray. With love and the Spirit baptize us today. O heavenly dove, descend from on high. We plead Thy rich blessing in mercy draw nigh. We humbly beseech Thee, Lord Jesus, we pray. With love and the Spirit baptize us today. Pray that prayer with me as we sing it. It's number 258 in your hymnal. Set to music you know so that you won't concentrate on the music now. Read the words. They'll be on the screen as well. Oh, let's pray that He will baptize us anew this day.